Support for Decoder comes from NetSuite. Here are some numbers all business owners should know for 2024. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash decoder. That's netsuite.com slash decoder to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash decoder. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Okay, here is the quick version of a very long backstory. In 2019, the Trump administration brokered a deal allowing T-Mobile to buy Sprint as long as it helped Dish Network stand up a new 5G network to keep the number of national wireless carriers at four and preserve competition in the mobile market. You can say a lot about the deal, but it happened. And now in 2022, Dish's network, which is called Project Genophysis, that's a real name, is slowly getting off the ground. And it's built on a new kind of wireless technology called Open Radio Access Network, or ORAN. Dish's network is only the third ORAN network in the entire world. And if ORAN works, it will radically change how the entire wireless industry operates. I've wanted to know more about ORAN for a long time. So today I'm talking to Tarek Amin, CEO of Rakuten Mobile. Rakuten Mobile is a new wireless carrier in Japan. It just launched in 2020. It's also the world's first ORAN network. And Tarek basically pushed this whole concept into existence. Now, Tarek has a long history in the mobile business. He's an engineer who has run engineering groups at T-Mobile and Huawei, which provides a lot of equipment to the wireless industry. And importantly, he helped launch the Reliance Geo Network in India in 2016, which quickly became the dominant Indian wireless carrier by offering low-cost 4G LTE service. Now he's doing it again with Rakuten Mobile, and the bet he's making is on ORAN. Here's the deal with ORAN. Right now, a wireless carrier like AT&T or Verizon runs its network on proprietary hardware from vendors like Nokia, Ericsson, ZTE, and Huawei. Those are the big four. You buy their proprietary base stations, they run their proprietary software, and all of that forms a radio access network, which the carrier manages, or much more likely signs a lucrative service contract for those companies to manage. Tarek's big idea is an open radio access network to break apart the hardware and software and make it so that many more vendors can build radio access hardware that Rakuten Mobile can run its own software on. Think about it like a Mac versus a PC. A Mac is Apple hardware running Apple software, while a PC can come from anyone and run Windows just fine, or run another operating system if you want. That's the promise of ORAN that it will increase competition and lower costs for cellular base station hardware, allow there to be more software innovation, 
and generally make networks faster and more reliable because operators like Rakuten Mobile will be in tighter control of the software that runs the networks and even move some of that software from the hardware itself to cloud services like Amazon AWS. Now, I've covered the mobile industry for years, and these are all very conservative companies that do not like to take risks on unproven technology, which is fair because the investment to build a network is massive. But Tarek pushed through and built the world's first ORED network in Japan with Rakuten Mobile. He says his operating costs are 40% cheaper than his competitors, and he promises that Rakuten Mobile will deliver vastly lower latency on its network because it controls the software. In fact, Tarek doesn't employ any hardware engineers at all. Rakuten Mobile is all software people. That's remarkable. What's more, since Rakuten Mobile is making all the software that can run on open hardware, they can sell it to other people. So Tarek is also the CEO of Rakuten Symphony, which, you guessed it, is helping DISH run its network here, along with another network called one in one in Germany. I really wanted to know if ORAN is going to work, and how Tarek is managing to make it happen in such a traditionalist industry. So we got into it, like really into it. There is a lot of vocabulary in this episode. Here's some notes. You'll hear Tarek say Greenfield a lot. That just means building a new network from scratch with new technology. He also says CapEx, that stands for capital expenditure, which is basically how much a carrier is spending to build and maintain its network. Tarek mentions the cloud and the edge a lot. The cloud just means data centers, and the edge is the part of the network closest to the user, the closest cell towers and the devices that connect to them. Tarek talks about OSS, that stands for operation subsystems. That's the software that runs on all that network hardware. We talk about latency, which is the delay between transferring data. The lower the latency, the faster the network feels. Newer phones and networks support something called eSIM, which is how you authenticate a phone to a network. Traditional SIM cards are just a little piece of plastic. You're probably familiar with them. eSIMs are virtual and let you switch carriers by just pushing a button on the screen. 5G networks use a radio technology called Massive MIMO. That's a real name. MIMO stands for multiple input, multiple output. It allows for sending and receiving multiple data signals simultaneously. MIMO has been used in cell networks since 3G, but with 5G, it works at an even larger scale. So massive MIMO. This is real. Tarek talks about building small cells and big cells. The big cells are just traditional cell towers, and small cells are exactly what they sound like. They're just smaller access points, but you can put more of them in a dense area like a city and get better coverage. Okay, I think that's enough notes. Here's Tarek Amin, CEO of Rakuten Mobile and Rakuten Symphony. Here we go. Tarek Amit, you are the CEO of Rakuten Mobile and the CEO of Rakuten Symphony. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you, Nudeling. Thank you. Pleasure being with you. I am very excited to talk to you. I have been very curious about this next generation of wireless networks that's being built. Rakuten Mobile is one of the leaders in those next generation networks. But we got to start at the beginning. Rakuten's a Japanese company. Rakuten Mobile is in Japan. We have a largely U.S.-based audience. So just to start, can you explain what Rakuten is, what kind of company it is, and its presence in Japan? Well, Nile, the Rakuten group as a whole is definitely, I would say, not a telecom company. It is mostly an internet services company. The company started as an e-commerce one of the earliest e-commerce technology companies in Japan. Today, it is one of the largest e-commerce, largest fintech, banking, travel. So a significant internet services, primarily built around a massive ecosystem in Japan. And the only missing piece for Rakuten as a group 
was the mobile connectivity business. And that's why I came to Japan to help Rakuten build and launch a disruptive architecture for its mobile 4G, 5G network uh, in this country. So let me make a really bad comparison. But it was a huge internet service provider. It's been around for a while. This is kind of like if Yahoo was massively successful and started a wireless network. Correct. I mean, think, think of Amazon. I mean, what would happen if Amazon launched a mobile network in the U.S.? And it's, uh, it's really rocket and operates at this scale in Japan. And uh, maybe this is the best analogy I would give you is, is having a company with a disruptive mindset, disruptive skill set, disruptive culture, disruptive organization. And uh, the company endorsed my super crazy idea of how we should build this next generation mobile infrastructure. And I think that's why I attribute most of the success is the company DNA and culture is just remarkably different. So it's huge. How is it structured overall? And then how is Rakuten Mobile a part of that structure? Well, if you think of uh, all the entities today, I think from uh, the founder and chairman of the company, Mickey, is probably, you know, one of the most innovative leaders I have ever had the opportunity to work with. I cannot tell you how much I enjoy the interaction we have with him. Down to earth, his leadership style is definitely hands-on. He doesn't really operate at a high level. The fundamental belief of Rakuten is around synergistic impact for its ecosystem. So if you think about the company with its 71 internet-facing services in Japan, and by the way, we also operate globally, you as a consumer have one membership ID that you benefit from. So the points membership loyalty is the foundation of what this company works on. So regardless of which services you consume, We tie all of these services through this unique ID across these 71 internet services. So the companies and the organizations are internally have subsidiaries and legal structures that would separate all of them. But yet, synergistically, they are connected through this membership points loyalty system, which we think is really, really critical to grow the synergistic impact of not just one services, but the collective services to the end consumer. So uh, today, Rakuten Mobile is a subsidiary of the group, and most recently, Rakuten Symphony, which is really more focused on our platform business, the, taking the, the technology and the architecture that we have done in Japan and focus more on globalization of this technology, selling it and promoting it to global customers. When you say Symphony, do you mean the wireless network technology or the technology of the whole company? Yes, Symphony itself is much more than just wireless. Of course, it has uh, you know a cloud connectivity, edge cloud connectivity architecture. It had the wireless technology stack for 4G, 5G, lifecycle management for automation operations. So it is the platform that the basis of Symphony was the technology that Rocket and Mobile launched in Japan. And in August uh, of last year, we launched Rocket and Symphony as a formal entity to take all the technology now and promote it to global customer base. Yeah, one of the reasons I think you and I are having this conversation is Dish Network in the United States is a Symphony customer. They're launching a next generation 5G network. I've been very curious about how that's going. And it sounds like Symphony is a big piece of the puzzle there. Just to give you maybe a bit of background, maybe we should start, if you don't mind, talking a little bit about the mobile business in Japan, because really this is the foundation, how this idea initially started from. So, um, you know, I I would tell you, I I have had a super crazy life. I am really blessed 
that I had the opportunity to work with amazing leaders. I worked across um, you know three continents so far. I've been into 22 geographies. Um, my previous experience before coming to Japan, building another large green field in India called Reliance Geo, have taught me quite a bit, by the way. It taught me the value of the US dollar, to be very frank with you. <laughs> when you go into a country that the basis and the economic of units on how much you could charge a consumer is one to two US dollars, you know, the idea of supply chain procurement and cost has to change. I mean, you have to find a way to build a cost-efficient networks. So I, I've, I've done a lot of very, very disruptive products in, in India. We've launched very successfully Reliance uh, Geo. It became a really good Cinderella story for the industry. And I am extremely thankful for what happened to me in the India and extremely thankful for what Geo have taught me personally. And I always wondered, if I get a second opportunity to build a green field, what would I do different? So um, to give you perspective and everybody that's listening to this podcast perspective, you know, if you really look at mobile technology since the inception of the first 1G in 1981, this industry has been nothing but about, I call it hardware changes. You take old hardware, you replace it with no hardware. And as the G's changes, even here we are in 2022, nothing has changed on the way we deploy network. It's still complex, too expensive. I don't think the essence of AI and autonomy exists into the DNA of the network. So long story short, that's why when you look at the cost expenditures to build new technology like 5G, I think it is really cost prohibitive. So by coincidence, I met the chairman and CEO of uh, Rakuten Group, uh, Mickey Mikitani, and I really loved everything about what Rakuten is all about. You know, and at the time I didn't, like, like most people, of course, I didn't know necessarily who Rakuten was. I just knew who Rakuten because I love football, soccer. <laughs> and, and I know there was a big sponsor of FC Barcelona. So that I knew as much. And... Uh, you know, when Mickey starts explaining about the company fabric, its DNA, its internet services, I really, really thought what a significant opportunity he has if he adopt a very different architecture in how these networks are deployed, one that moves away from this proprietary hardware. And what happens if we remove hardware completely and build the world first uh, and only cloud-native software telco? And at the time, this was just in PPT. I mean, let me be really honest with you. It's just an idea that I conceived thinking, what would I do different uh, had I get, been granted an opportunity like Reliance Geo, uh, looking at the cost structure that we have spent in Geo. And one of the key elements that I wanted to change was really around, number one, adopting this cloud architecture, uh, which is unique. Nobody have really deployed an end-to-end -end horizontal cloud across Anitelco at the time. Second, maybe you have heard of, uh, you know, the industry has been excited talking about this thing called Open RAN and, and the idea of this hardware software disaggregation. And third for me, and I told everybody, I said, with my dream, ultimately, whether it is cloud, whether it's Open RAN, the dream is the enablement of full autonomous network, a network that is able to heal itself, run itself, fix itself with no human beings. And uh, this is the journey of mobile, uh, Nilay. I think this is what differentiated so much about what we have done. We went into this journey 
not, and I cannot tell you, I had a recipe that defined <laughs> what success would equal like, but uh, I can't describe it to you. I mean, I got obsessed about this idea, obsessed. And um, uh, for four years, uh, driving very hard, uh, you know, uh, by creating a world-class organization, creating a larger ecosystem, getting everybody cultivated, motivated about this idea and concept that four years ago did not necessarily exist. And here we are, you know, we are now post-commercial launch. The world is celebrating what we have done. They like and enjoy the ideas around this disaggregated network. They love the concept of cloud native architecture. And then it became, and what I love the most, that we opened up a healthy debate across the globe including what we saw and really encourage and support what DISH is doing in the United States by deploying Open RAN as an architecture. I think this is absolutely the right platform to build future resilient, scalable, cost-effective uh, mobile uh, networks. So, so this is the high-level story of how this journey started. It really, really started with, I mean, a super crazy, ambitious idea, an idea that nobody thought that we would succeed. Everybody, if you read uh, four years ago, some of the press release that was published, I cannot tell you how many times I was told I'm crazy, I'm going to fail, this is not <laughs> going to succeed. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, uh, I, as I said to you, I, we became fanatic about this idea. And I think that's what uh, drove us all to emotionally connect to the mission, the objective. And I'm very, very happy to see the results that the team has achieved. So I want to take that in stages. I, want, I definitely want to talk about Geo, which is a really interesting foundational element of this whole story. I want to talk about what you've built with ORAN and how that works in the industry. And I want to talk about where it could go as a platform for other network providers. But I got to ask you the decoder question first. You described your ideas as super crazy like five times now. You're the CEO of a big wireless provider in Japan. You're selling that stuff to other CEOs. How do you make decisions? I have to tell you, and I know uh, this might sound a little bit controversial, but I have to tell you, I, in any project I have taken, and I remember this even from my early, early days, I know we always been taught that when you look at big ambitious things and big projects, you're always taught that you have to plan for plan A and then plan for plan B. And I tell you, this never worked with me. <laughs> I always look at a concept I call no plan B for me. Any project I have taken, I really go into it, not thinking that this project will fail, thus I need to look at alternative and options. So I am absolutely not worried about making big, bold decisions. I live by a basic philosophy that it is sometimes okay to fail, but let's fail fast, pick ourselves and progress. I also would tell you that, uh, and I'm not advocating that people should not have option A and option B, but for me personally, I felt that if I planned from the beginning of what option B might look like, I would give my mind the opportunity to entertain that there is an escape clause. And when you work on ambitious projects, I think having an escape clause maybe in the beginning, not necessarily a good thing. I think you need to be convicted about your beliefs, your ideas, I have taken some really, really tough calls, by the way, uh, during my life, my career. For whatever reason, I wasn't really worried about the consequences of failure. Because I think sometimes we learn more from the mistakes we make. We learn more by having through the tough experiences, whether it is personal or professional. 
So I, I would think my decision-making capability is one that really is very bold about uh, trying to make the team believe in the objectives that we're trying to, to accomplish and not have to worry about failure. Sometimes you just need to be focused on the idea and the mission. And yes, the results are important, but that's not the only thing I was married to. I've operated like this all my life, and so far I'm really happy with some of the thinking that I've adopted, but I'm certainly telling you, I'm not advocating that people should not have options in their life. But I think in certain projects, I do really think that this idea of no plan B is, is something that has merits to how you adopt your leadership style and, and approaching projects before thinking about, hey, you know, this project might not work. So what's the other option? Yeah. Well, I think with deploying millions upon millions of dollars of mobile broadband equipment, there often feels like you got to be committed. So let's talk about that. Let's start with Geo. If the listeners don't know, Reliance Geo is now the biggest carrier in India. It's extremely popular, but it launched as a pretty disruptive challenger against other carriers in India, like Airtel. And it launched at 4G. It was free for like the first six months, right? This was, you just gave it away for free and it's been lower cost ever since. But it is not the new idea, right? It is not the open hardware, software, disaggregated network that you're talking about now. How did you make Geo so cheap in the beginning in India? I would tell you just um, a one-minute prelude. I was sitting in very comfortably, by the way, in Newport Beach, and I get a, a call from my friend. And, uh, you know, he was asking me if I would be interested to go to India and be part of the leadership team to build this ambitious, audacious idea to build a massive network at scale in a country that has uh, north of 1.3 billion people. So, you know, I mean, my, my first reaction to him was, I mean, what do I know about India? I have colleagues that I know, but I've never really been there. But uh, he encouraged me to go and meet the executive leadership team of Reliance Geo. And I have to tell you, I had during the conversation, um, I, I went and did that because it seemed it seemed really an interesting opportunity. So I remember I flew to Dallas and I had a conversation um, um, with with three leaders at the time. I did not really know who they are. One of them in particular, I have to tell you, the more he talked, the more I just wanted to listen. I was really, really amazed by, by his ambition to what he wanted to achieve in the country. And uh, at the end of the conversation, you know, uh, what, what he told me. Um, what was his name? Mukesh Ambani. I mean, I, I would tell you from uh, a lot of people I worked with, I've learned quite a bit from him. I worked quite a bit from him. His viewpoint is uh, India was ranked 154th in the world in mobile broadband penetration before Reliance Geo. So the idea was... Can we bring and assemble an organization, a structure that takes India from 154th in the world and, and bring ubiquitous connectivity everywhere and anywhere you go across the country? Can 1.3 billion people benefit from this massive transformation by offering cutting edge services? At the time, by the way, LTE was the service that the GEO launched with. So uh, for me personally, I mean, I, I was really, really amazed by this ambition uh, and how big it was. And I said, this is an opportunity I just cannot pass. It was much bigger than financial reward. It was an opportunity of learning and understanding. I truly, utterly enjoy, you know, uh, meeting different cultures. I've always loved this. I just like where 
the more I interacted with people from different parts of the world, the more it just kind of fueled the energy inside me. So I picked myself up and I moved to India. I landed in, uh, I remember in the Mumbai old airport at the time. I powered my device. I see a symbol in the device I haven't seen in the US for a decade, which is a 2G symbol at the time. And I knew then what is the opportunity in front of GEO if we do this right. So 2G in India at the time was that the ubiquitous technology. Think about it. If you if you have 2G, I mean, what, what is really the definition of broadband is like, you know, 256 kilobits per second. I mean, this is really not for me, that's not Internet services. So the foundation of what GEO started with is number one. I and mean, I'll tell you the big things that I've learned. Most people think that the way you achieve best pricing is through a process called uh, request for proposals and reverse auctions to bring vendors and partners to compete and bid against each other. Sometimes there's a better way to do this. Sometimes you find larger companies that CEOs have emotion and connection to the idea that you're building and are willing to work with you as a true partner and so one of the key fundamental pillars I learned from GEO is not everything is about status quo, status quo on how you run supplier selection, vendor selection, request for proposal, and everything, everything starts from top leadership of partners you select and their, your ability and their ability to connect about the emotional journey, because it is an emotional journey after all to go do something like this at the scale of what Gio wanted to do. So I would tell you that my biggest lessons learned is the process of selecting suppliers were just uniquely different, uniquely different. You know, second, I think in terms of, um, um, you know, this idea of uh, building network at a cost that's relatively low, and I'm going to explain how this open RAN idea came in. So during that my tenure in Geo, I started really thinking about you know, to build network at scale, regardless of how cheap your labor is, you need to fundamentally change your operating platforms for digitization. So think about uh, at the time, Geo would have north of 100,000 people in one day working in the field, deploying sites. Now, how do you manage 100,000 people where you give them tasks, orders, check on the quality of installation they do, and audit the work before you turn up any of what is called the base stations, the sites, or the radio units. And one of the things that I've done is to drive this entire digitization and the digital workflows associated with connecting everybody in India, whether it is uh, geo employees, it's contractors, it's distributed organization. And I think, you know, over three, 400,000 people at an instant of time would come to the systems that my team has built. That changed everything. It changed the mentality of how we drive cost efficiency and uh, how we run the operations. And this is where I would tell you a big building blocks started formulating in my mind around uh, automation and its impact to operational efficiency if you approach it with a completely fundamental point of view from the current legacy systems that you would find in other telcos. The second thing, I, uh, I also start to wonder because of the constraint of financial pressure on what we call the average revenue per user, the ARPU, which is the measurement of how much you charge a mobile customer, 
you know, I, I want to define, the, um, uh, you know, a, a different way of how the network should be deployed. So I would tell you the story that changed everything in my life in GEO. One of the key products, when you build a network like GEO that has to support 1.3 billion, first of all, it's not just about these big, massive radio sites you deploy, but we need things called small cells. The small cells, can consider them are products that look like Wi-Fi access point, but you deploy lots of them to achieve what we call in the industry the heterogeneous design, design that has big sites, small sites, to meet capacity and coverage requirement. So I prepared an amazing presentation about small cells to the leadership team of GEO, and I thought I kicked it out of the park. <laughs> and then I got asked a question I have never got asked in my life. I mean, imagine, I am a veteran in this industry, by the way, I've been doing it for a very, very long time. <laughs> And the question that I got asked, someone asked me, Tarek, I love your strategy. Can you tell me who is the chipset supplier in the small cell product? I'm like, what are you talking about? See, th this, this question, and if someone asked you the chipset supplier, I have never been asked such a question in any operator that I have ever worked for outside of India. And I... Like, you know, a pounder in this. And, uh, and you know, I was told, look, Tarek, money doesn't grow uh, on trees in India. You need to know the cost. To know the cost, you must understand the component cost. I mean, so this was, this was the first building block. So I said, okay, next time I come to this meeting, I am not going to be uneducated anymore. And, and so I, I've taken a, you know, a, a small project. At the time, it, to me, it did not seem audacious. I said, look, if I go to an electronic shop in the US, a Best Buy, you and I could buy a Wi-Fi access point, $100. But if I buy an enterprise access point from a large supplier, it costs $1,000. And I wanted to know what is the difference. So I hired five of the best university graduates one could ask for. And I asked them a trivial question, open both boxes, write the part numbers. I had a really great friends in Qualcomm. I asked him and I remember this gentleman said to me, he says, Tarek, you are becoming too dangerous. <laughs> now this right, is- You're the, the margin, you're the, you're the network operator, you're their margin. So he goes, you're becoming too dangerous and this is where everything starts clicking, everything. Mm -hmm. So I went to the chairman of GEO and you know, as I said to you, he was not afraid to think also the way I wanted to think. I said, look, I want to build our own Wi-Fi access point. I said, if we buy an access point at $1,000, I am now convinced I could get you an access point at a sub $100. And so this is how it started. And in fact, you know, a year later, the total cost of the Wi-Fi access point that we build in GEO cost $35. So when you think about this delta uh, between a thousand and thirty-five, you know, translating a substantial amount of money saved to us, and this is where it started. So it started by disaggregating everything, and Geo enabled its cost structure, and it's able to offer for free because a it had a really, really amazing partnership with suppliers that secured a, a great business terms, simplification of technology, LTE only and an amazing process about network rollout all played a huge factor in lowering the cost and economics for GEO. So let me ask you on that. So on GEO, 
right? This is a transformative network in India. It is now obviously the most popular network in India, but you were able to offer a much lower cost product than the traditional cell providers in India with what sounds like very, very clever business moves, right? You went and negotiated new kinds of supplier agreements. You went and said, okay, we've got to actually integrate instead of buying off the shelf. We've got to integrate our products and find lower chipset costs and make our own products. We've got to build a new way to deploy the network more efficiently with our technicians. That's just really good management. Like to your credit, that's, those are excellent management moves. They're not technology moves. I would say like at their core, right? They're management moves. Now you're on to Rakuten. You're saying, I'm going to build Oran. That's a technology play, right? Yeah. So the, the way I would just broadly, it sounds like, okay, you're going to take the management playbook that made Geo work at a lower cost. And now you're lowering those costs even further with the technology of Oran, or you're proving out a technology that will one day enable further lower costs. There's two things I would tell you I couldn't do in Geo. And it, and it maybe it's it's not the fault of anybody. Maybe it is just the maturity of the timing that maybe the timing wasn't right. So number one that I wanted to change if you look at uh, building a mobile network, everybody, I think, now more or less understand that you need antennas, you need base stations, you need radio access, core network infrastructure. But unless you are into this industry, you don't realize the complexity of the operation tools that one needs in order to run and manage this distributed massive infrastructure. So the first thing I wanted to change in Geo is the traditional architecture. This management layer is called OSS. OSS layers is, oh my God, archaic is a, is a maybe I'm too polite to say archaic. <laughs> uh, and especially if you worked in an adjacent vertical in an industry such as in hyperscalers, uh, an internet facing company, you will be scratching your head to say, I cannot believe this is how networks are managed today despite the elegance of the Gs and the G and changing from one to five. But the process of managing a network is as archaic as you would ever imagine. The idea of a true customer experience management is aloof. It's still a dream that nobody has enabled. So the first thing I wanted to do is to change this paradigm, the paradigm of having thousands, thousands of disaggregated tool sets to manage a network into a consolidated platform was an idea that, you know, frankly speaking, I couldn't drive in Geo. So that's the first fundamental block. Now, I'll tell you why that's even more important than OpenRAN. These building blocks for new architecture, next generation of OSS. What does OSS stand for? Operation subsystems. Okay. You know, this operation platforms, I, you know, if we build them, on a new modern architecture that supports real-time telemetry, the idea for you to get information and real-time information about every element, every node that you have into your network, be able to correlate them, be able to apply AI, machine learning on top of them, requires modern age platforms, but it is so critical because my dream was, I think our success will be celebrated not because of open RAN, and that's the big mistake. I'm not really celebrating that we just did open RAN. I think many people don't realize that I think the grander vision is I want to be talked about, not as Tarek, of course, I'm talking about Srakatan, as a company that did maybe what Tesla has done for the electric industry, autonomy in car, 
and the analogy of autonomy and mobile network. Autonomy and mobile network is an absolutely, absolutely an amazing opportunity to build a resilient, secure, reliable network that actually have, I think, better security architecture, better resiliency, and does not need the complexity of the way we run and manage networks of today. So that was the first building block, right? I mean, and, and by the way, the impact of this big building blocks is massive. And I'll explain to you that the, the delta on organizational efficiency between Rocket and Mobile and, uh, and other uh, telcos today. Now, the second, if you look at the cost structure for mobile network, and I couldn't also do this in Reliance Geo at the time, if you look at a pie chart and say, where do we spend money, regardless of geography, regardless of country, um, 70 to 80% of your spend always goes into this thing is called this radio access. This radio access today has been a private club that's been really meant for about four or five company and that's it. There is no diversification of supply chain. You have no option but to buy from Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei, or ZT. Nobody else could sell you the products of radio access. And the radio access products, are the, those are the, the base stations, right? The cell, the components of the cell towers, right? Correct. Those are the base stations. And, and, the, and they attribute to about 70% of the CapEx. So they're, they are by far the one area that nobody and no startup have ever embraced an idea to say, you know what? Why don't we try to disaggregate this? Why don't we start to move away from the traditional architecture for how these base stations are deployed, which runs on custom hardware, custom ASICs, to a, now a true software that runs on commodity appliance, equivalent to what you would find inside data centers. So this concept and ideas, honestly, um, you know, as an industry, been talked about, but nobody was willing to take the risk at all in any startup. Maybe, maybe part of it is... Um, and maybe I'm wrong in this area, that your job is secure if you pick a traditional vendor. Maybe that's four right. years ago, what, what I was thinking through. And this is I, like nobody gets fired if you buy IBM. Like this is like an old... Exactly. So, something like that, you know, but, and, and honestly... But let me ask you this. Is it because the initial investment is so high? Like there are not many startup wireless networks in the world. And when they start, they need an enormous amount of capital just to buy the spectrum. Is that just the stakes are too high to take that kind of risk? It's two issues. One, um, um, I, I think as an industry, and I tell you, I'm not saying anything that nobody else understand the facts out of it, is we did one big mistake that we don't reward startups in the way they should be rewarded. We don't support them the way they should be supported. Our ability to incubate, help, and build an eco and thriving ecosystem that, that is built on new innovations, new ideas, new startups, I think in telecom, nobody would argue that to me is still really, uh, you know, a, a dream and a reality that everybody wants to see happening, but we're not there today. Look, to do what we have done in Japan, I will tell you, it was complex. It was not simple. It was not easy. And the risk of associating, you know, when you have a running network and carrying massive amount of traffic, of course, there are risks that you're going to have to take. And the risks in that case is, is ensuring that you don't disrupt your running base. You don't disrupt and offer bad quality services. So you said uh, right now the four vendors are Siemens, Nokia, Huawei, ZTE. 
you have moved to open ran open radio access in Japan. Do you have more vendors than those four? Are you actually using the commodity hardware with the software defined network or is it still those four vendors, but now you can run your code on them? I'll tell you something that uh, we have done. So the foundation of the success of Rakuten mobile today started by Rakuten itself enabling and acquiring one of the most disruptive companies in this open RAN space. So we bought a company in Boston called Altiostar. I thought Altiostar had everything one would dream about, except nobody would give them a chance. So the way that we did things is I diversified my hardware supply chain where I purchased hardware through 11 suppliers, not four. So I did massive diversification now on the supply chain. I mandated where manufacturing can happen. So in terms of products, security, chipsets, in the era that we entered around heightened security, especially around 5G, I also felt really, really good about our ability to control manufacturing and supply chain. The software, Altiostar provided the radio software for this entire open access network in Japan. And uh, now Altiostar software is running over 290,000 radiating elements. I mean, this is massive. And 98% of population coverage of Japan is served there. The large vendors, you know, I mean, this is the, the part I will tell you, and I give them huge credit. One of the larger vendors, Nokia, I tell you, they had a very, very big debate. I told Nokia, I want to buy your hardware, but I don't want to buy your software. I mean, this is also an idea that they debated internally. I know their board had to approve it. But this is the beauty of software disaggregation. So now I buy one hardware aspect of Nokia, and Altiostar is running the radio software for that platform. So this disaggregation now, A, we have diversified supply chain. So we are no longer just counting on four. We have 11 hardware suppliers. We have a common software stack. And the big building block, which is this OSS, we have enabled our own platforms and tools. So Rakuten has purchased Altiostar. From Boston, we have purchased a cloud, innovative cloud company in Silicon Valley called Rabin.io for our edge cloud. We have purchased the OSS company called NOI and formulated, you know, this integrated technology stack that is now part of Rakuten Symphony. You've described Rakuten's network as being in the cloud several times. Very simply, what does it mean for a wireless network to be cloud-based? If, if I give you an image, you know, four years ago, I was asked to do a keynote in Japan. That was my first day here. And uh, thanks to my translator, I think people understood the concepts I was explaining to them. I said, here is an image of what we don't want to build. If I show you not the base station side, but even in the core network, how to deliver voice, video, messaging, most of the telecom networks across the world, even till today, are still running into boxes of hardware. Having a cloud network means that your workloads now are moved away from proprietary implementation to a complete network function, software components. Software components that run with the beauty of what is called microservices for software and the elegance of things that cloud inherently supports like capacity management, auto-elasticity, scale in, scale out. Now, these basic terminology I'm not telling you things that has been invented by Rakata Mobile, but luckily, thanks to Google, Microsoft, Amazon, they've innovated like crazy on the cloud. And I've just benefited from the innovation that they have done. 
to deliver on scalability, resiliency, reliability, and a cost efficiency that one could never, ever imagine. By the way, on the cost, think about this as I call it, this is hyper-operation structure. 279,000 radiating elements, and the operational hit count in Racket and Mobile is still sitting below 250 people. That's crazy. And, and as the number increase, there is no direct proportionality between number of units in the network versus number of employees in network. Absolutely no direct correlation whatsoever anymore. So that's that to me is what I think cloud is all about. And then all the things on top of it is modules that I think you need to have to derive to the, you know, the operational efficiency that at least we did in Japan. So uh, from an end user perspective, right, you've now architected this network differently. You've created this small revolution in the wireless industry from the provider level where you can buy any hardware from 11 suppliers and run your software on it. Does the end user see an appreciable difference in quality is, or is it just lower cost? No, no, huge. I mean, one of the key reasons that Rakuten was encouraged, supported, and uh, we were determined to enter the mobile segment in Japan. At the time, we felt that competition is stagnant in Japan. The cost per user is one of the most expensive in the world. So we took, first of all, from the end consumer, the first thing they benefit from. We took, of course, a chapter from geo strategy on lowering the cost, burden, and economic. But we also did something that is so simple. At the time, the average rate plans in Japan was sitting about 100 US dollars, by the way, per user. And we dropped that cost for 27 US dollars, go crazy and limited. Go, and there is no caps. Now, when you go inside our stores, we change everything. We said, look, you don't need to think about the plans. There is only one plan. That's it. There is no this plan, that plan, that plan. So from a, from a choices point of view, we made life super simple. We bundled local, we bundled international, we bundled everything under one local plan, and we tied it synergistically to the larger ecosystem of Rakuten. So as you buy things, let's say, on e-commerce, as you buy things on our travel website, as you buy things from uh, Rakuten Energy, as you subscribe to Rakuten Bank, you acquire points. Now, these points, you could use them to pay off your cellular bill, even the $27, by the way, could be zero, effectively could be zero by the synergistic impact of other services you consume in Rakuten and the points you acquire from all of them. Would your would Rakuten Mobile be profitable at $27 a customer? If not, is it being subsidized by the larger Rakuten? So, so first of all, the, we have to be profitable. Part of the commitment in Japan is when, uh, of course, Spectrum here is not auctioned in Japan. We are allocated Spectrum. So you're given this spectrum, but there are conditions to it. You cannot just run a business that is not profitable standalone. So we will break even in, uh, in Rocket and Mobile and make it standalone. But the, the way that I think about it, it's not subsidized by the ecosystem. If I acquire you as a mobile customer, and because the impact I could bring to the larger sales contribution of you potentially buying from e-commerce travel, I am using connectivity to empower the purchases of these 70 plus internet services. So we're actually contributing to the larger group. As long as the, this uh, you know, total uh, top line revenue is increased because of mobile contribution, I think the group as a whole is gonna be in good shape. But even standalone mobile, 
we still are committed to our break-even point, um, and we need to make it as a as a profitable standalone business. But the group as a whole has just remarkable synergistic uh, impact uh, in our business. That's the benefit and value. Now, there's another benefit on the network architecture. When this network moved into these software pieces, I think uh, today we talk in the essence of marketing about edge. Now, edge to me, definition is so simple. It is all about bringing content as close to your device as humanly possible. To bring content close to you, I would always argue if you have nothing but virtual machines or network functions that are software, the ability for you to move these software components from large data centers and move them all the way to the edge is trivial, trivial, easy. Now, if you have to deal with hardware reallocation and move hardware from here to here, that becomes more complex. So when the edge use cases in Rocket and Mobile gets delivered, I will tell you, you're going to hear, hopefully, in the near future, a very, very amazing news about the lowest latency in the world, lowest latency in the world delivered over 5G network. And that is the beginning of what is possible now for maybe new use cases for the consumer. If I think of cloud gaming, it's never been successful, at least in wireless. Never been successful because networks itself could not sustain the latency that cloud gaming would need and require. So I think there will be a new era of applications that are going to discover not speed. I think speed is, in my opinion, sorry to tell you, it's a stupid metric to talk about. <laughs> I agree with you. We should talk about latency, latency, latency. How do you deliver sub, you know, four millisecond latency on a wireless network? This hasn't happened yet on licensed spectrum. So I think those are the things that I, I would tell you you're going to see the advantage of the software architecture and the benefit and the creation of new age application, cloud gaming. And even when we talk, if people are getting excited about metaverse, metaverse will need, must need this edge use cases to become life into the mobile fabric. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, Tarek is going to tell us how he would build a network in the United States. Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want. They even have tools to help you create a custom logo, and they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code decoder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be a challenge for men to speak up about their health, and oftentimes that's rooted in the fear of being vulnerable. But there are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they are looking to provide you with the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you 
for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with Terakamin. So you've talked about OpenRAN, how you've built it, how you've architected the network for Rakuten Mobile, how you have new software layers, you have new hardware relationships. You're also the CEO of Rakuten Symphony, which is the company inside Rakuten that would then license all these components to other vendors. Dish Network in this country is one of those providers. They're trying to build a brand new Greenfield OpenRAN 5G network. They're at the very beginning stages of it. If you were going to build a network, an ORAN network in the United States, how would you do it? Well, the first thing I would tell you, my, my focus maybe would be a lot different than many people would think. It is not about technology. I have never in my life approached a problem where thinking technology is, a pro- is an issue. I think we do not give ourselves enough credit about how creative we are as human beings and our ability to solve complex problems, we are just amazing beings. Now, we we don't sometimes give ourselves enough credit for what we could possibly do. So first thing I would start with is structure, organization, and culture. What is the culture you need to have to do amazing disruptive things? So that's what I, when I moved into Japan, look, I I mean, I didn't know anything about Japan. I always knew that I wanted to visit it, but I didn't know the complexities and, and the challenges I'm going to face. And one of the key things I've done, I mean, imagine in in the heart of Tokyo, uh, largely driven and supported by an amazing leadership team that's satiric. The world is your canvas, higher from anywhere. And I've brought in 70 nationalities relocated, not as expats, relocated as full-time employees of our office in Japan. Bringing this diversified, multicultured organization was the key. And I hired, by the way, I did my own recruiting. I handpicked my team. So my focus initially was, is, you know, what is the top of DNA I need to disrupt the DNA of, of I call it the, the spirit of the warriors that are willing to take these tough challenges, willing to take the bruises. Don't get discouraged by people telling you this will not work, etc. So long story short, I think I would not build a network that looks the way that it's looked for 30 years, I would build a network, not because Rocket and have done it this way, but I do think networks of the future must have this essence of software and must have autonomy into its DNA, not just about open RAM, by the way, this is a holistic approach for fundamental transformation in the network architecture. I ask this question a lot, and the answer always surprises me. Most companies that I think of as hardware companies, once they make the investment in software, they end up with more software engineers than hardware engineers. Do you have more software engineers than hardware engineers? I have uh, no hardware engineers at all. None. And the way, the way I've done it is uh, from the beginning, this was done by design. I, I knew that hardware, I could create an ecosystem. And I don't want to be into the hardware business. I knew that from a fundamental business model, I thought that I had enough credible relationship in this industry 
to cultivate and create an ecosystem for people that just enjoy being into this hardware design, but it's not us, it's not our fabric, it's not our DNA. I thought that, you know, and, and I'll tell you, the more I looked at the world and the more you see the amount of, um, of success companies have had by investing heavily into the right skill sets, whether it is from data science, AI, ML, and the various software organizations that they have built, this is what I thought we needed. So today, for Racket and Symphony, if you go to our largest R&D center in India, we have now over 3,500 people that they only do software, only software. And that to me is an asset that you just unprecedented in terms of capability, what we could build, what we could deliver, and the scale that we could deliver at. So I don't want to invest in hardware. I just think that is not my business. And our investment is all about platform. And I'm really, really enjoying to see the advancements that we have enabled. And we are maybe in the early journey still. I still have a lot of other things that I want to accomplish before we say Symphony succeeded. Symphony is you know, the first of its kind company, right? It's going to sell a new kind of operating platform to other carriers. Do you have competitors? Do you see this being the next turn of the wireless industry that you're going to see other platform integrators like Symphony show up and say to carriers, hey, we can do this part for you. You can focus on customer service or I don't know, fighting with the FCC or whatever as the carriers do. I mean, to be very honest with you, I think the more that enter the space, for me, I welcome it. I love the idea of having more competitors into the space. A, it challenges my own team to, to stay on top of their toes. That's really good. But also at the same time, by having more uh, entrants that come into the space, it helps me cultivate the, the hardware ecosystem. Today, Symphony is uniquely positioned. Why I would say there's not a whole lot of people that could provide the integrated stack that Symphony has. In one essence, Symphony's biggest advantage, it has a running live lab carrying large commercial customer base called Racket and Mobile. And nobody tells me, don't do this or that in Racket and Mobile. I could do disruptive ideas, disruptive innovation, test and validate new products and technologies before giving them to <laughs> anybody else. It's good to be the CEO of both is what you're saying. I know. And this is, this is one of the reasons <laughs> I, I uh, honestly, I accepted and volunteered because I thought for the short term, it's important to be able to control these two ecosystems because... In Japan, it's a quality-sensitive market. Now, if I build a high-quality network, nobody will doubt that Symphony technology stack is not credible, it's not scalable, it's not reliable, it's not secure. So to, to that extent, I think um, we are uniquely positioned because our ability to deliver on a robust automation platform, open RAN software technology architecture, an innovative edge cloud uh, software um, you know, I don't see many in the industry that has the technology capability today that Symphony could offer. People have bits and pieces of what we have. But when I look at the integrated stack, I'm really, really happy to see that we have some unique intellectual properties and IPs that, that are really remarkably differentiated from, from the market today. So obviously, Dish is a client. We'll see how their network goes. Are you talking to Telefonica and Verizon and Deutsche Telekom? Are they thinking about ORAN in this way? Today in the, in the U.S., I mean, since it's public, I could talk about it. It's, it's, uh, as I mentioned to you, it is for me not just about an ORAN discussion. It's, a, it's about almost the, the whole story. So we've announced uh, in last Mobile World Congress a partnership that we're doing with AT&T. Today, AT&T is, uh, is working with Rocket and Symphony 
on a few disruptive application around the uh, digital workflow and the operation for wireless and wireline, uh, same as Telefonica in UK, Telefonica in Germany. And our first, by the way, big breakthrough as an integrated stack. And the most exciting thing is also in the heart of Europe in Germany, we are the supplier for a new greenfield operator called One and One. I told the CEO of One and One, my dream is to build Rakuten 2.0 in Germany. So we are building the entire fabric of this network. And it's been really, really an amazing journey to take all the lessons learned of Japan and be able now to bring them to Germany. We're at the early stages, but I'm really optimistic to see what the future would hold for Open RAN as a whole, for Symphony. But I will tell you at this, at least, at least now, Rakuten Mobile and Rakuten Symphony has opened a healthy debate, well-needed debate in the industry about supplier, uh, radio access supplier alternatives and diversification that we need to move away into a software-driven network. And I think that's what we feel that's a big, big accomplishment for us. As you build out the ORAN networks, one thing that we know very well in the United States is that our handset vendors, Apple, Samsung, Google, Motorola are very picky about qualifying their devices for networks. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Is there a difference in the conversation between a traditional network and an ORAN network when you go and talk to the Apples and Samsungs of the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'll leave it up to your imagination of who, you know, the, one of the world's largest device manufacturer, you know, before we got approved as a mobile company to be able to sell their devices, I have to tell you the... the the, the pleasure, the pleasure of working with the <laughs> likes of um, of Apple for me. What, and I'm, I'm being really honest about this. I really liked it. I mean, look, their burden to quality was really high. And their ability to accept and certify a quality of network, I thought, you know, if we get the certification that we needed from them, uh, that's another, you know, third-party audit, if you will, that I have met a, a big quality hurdle. So... In the early days, you know, I will tell you, I mean, Apple engineering team is really, really strong. I mean, they, they really understood the technology, uh, but their concern was, okay, the technology is really great. Uh, there's a lot of facets to it that is fascinating, but no matter how great it is, I had to pass a set of KPIs and metrics for device certification. Now, this was not trivial. It really, really was not trivial. And for me personally, I went, by the way, through the CERM journey in GEO, right? So I kind of have some ideas about the burdens to acceptance from large device uh, manufacturing companies. But I also knew that this is a process of identifying issues, solving them, coming back to the device vendors, whether it is Apple, Samsung, and others, and continue to reiterate and improving the quality. So I went through the same journey that I did in GEO and went through the same journey in mobile, but we got finally, you know, just slightly after our commercial launch, when we got our commercial certification on being able to sell Apple devices, that was a big relief for all of us. A big relief because it means that we have reached a quality level that they deem is minimal acceptable to carry the device. And, and of course, we monitor the quality every day. So I'm really, really happy that we've done this now. We have proven that Open RAN network, especially the software that we have built in Japan, is running at an amazing reliability. You know, so on everybody, I mean, I really would encourage anybody listening to the podcast. I mean, it's just sometimes amazes me, amazes me. Rather than celebrating maybe our 
courageous attempt to do something good for everybody, the early days of our journey was all about skepticism. You know, like this will not work. This will not work. Well, this is my question. I, was Apple more skeptical of your network going into tests and other networks because the technology is different? I, no, no. I think Apple definitely the device vendors were very supportive. I mean, the skepticism came from my opinion, fear, uncertainty, and doubt that I believe traditional OEMs and traditional vendors wanted to tell everybody that this technology is horrible. You know, <laughs> and uh, um, to, to such to such an extent, I ignored everything, and I still till today. I mean, I would argue with anybody. I said you cannot argue the benefit of cloud brought to IT and enterprise. Now, that is undisputable benefit to this. But when it comes to telco, why would you argue the advantage and benefit of moving all your telco workloads to cloud? So I think this this debate is, is ending, and it's ending much quicker and in a better place for everybody. But I would tell you, I mean, I, I have a huge admiration to what Apple has done. It's really impressive company. And, and for me, the more that we continue to engage with them, uh, you could tell that this company is obsessed about quality. I mean, this is I liked. And I thought if, if we clear the hurdle of getting their acceptance, then it shows another validation for us that we're running a high quality network and uh, they're a, a strategic critical part of our supplier ecosystem today in, in Japan. Let me flip this question around real quick. Uh, one of my favorite things about the Indian smartphone market is how wide open it is on the device side. This is something that happened after Geo rolled out, but I was friends with a former editor of Gadgets 360 in India, Kunal Dua, and he told me, my team covers 12 to 15 Android phone launches a week because the device market is wide open and you can connect anything and there's dual SIMs and the actual consumer experience of picking a phone is of unlimited choice. That is not the case in the United States. It's not the case in other countries. What do you think the benefits of that version of things are? Because I'm quite honestly jealous of it, that there's that much choice in that market. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a couple of things in, in India that uh, really benefit the country quite a bit. Of course, when you have volume, when you have massive volume, people are intrigued to enter, you know, the, this economies uh, that exist. I think in the you know U.S. And, and certain things have changed also, by the way, in Japan now. The government policies, especially in Japan, is mandating the support for open device ecosystem. In our case, we even told them that 100% of our device portfolio will support eSIM. Now think about this, eSIM gives you the ability and flexibility within one second to switch carriers, by the way. I mean, just, oh, I don't like this, I like this. So it gives you choices. The freedom of choices is just unparalleled. And then we started, we as Rocket and Mobile, we changed the business model. We said, look, we'll enable eSIM. There's no fees to termination of contracts. There's no fees for anything. If you don't like us, you could leave. If you like us, you are part of our family. So we made it really simple because, you know, to a certain extent, it is a dream for us to build an open ecosystem. So one thing we've done that we're trying to see uh, its relative success, because we own a very, very large e-commerce website, we opened up a storefront for open device markets come in, purchase, and acquire. Now, the difference between India and the U.S. is India does not subsidize the device, while the U.S., you know, as a consumer, you have been trained that you could buy an iPhone by signing a contract, and the iPhone will be subsidized by the carrier. So I think a consumer could benefit from this open device ecosystem, but also, you know, a little bit of the mentality change would have to exist 
to say, well, will, will a consumer accept the idea that they have to buy a device? And from a carrier point of view, I mean, I still argue if they don't subsidize, maybe they could lower the cost of their tariffs, you know? So, yeah. and I think it's just still an evolution for us in mobile. We pretty much adopted what India has done. And then we said, bring your own device. And we promoted all these devices that you're talking about in uh, India. We brought them now into our e-commerce site in Japanese. It's called Ichiba. So we brought them into Ichiba website, gave them a storefront, let them advertise, let them market. Our Ichiba website has massive amount of daily active users that come to it. And we don't benefit necessarily from selling their devices, but we want, we want us not to subsidize any device. That's the objective. We're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the biggest challenges Tarek has had in building an ORAN network. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. We're back. What's the biggest challenge of ORAN, right? You have a long history in this industry. I'm sure many challenges are familiar to you in building a traditional network. What's the biggest surprising challenge of building it in this way? Well, let me, let me tell you the part that I was surprised about, uh, not to underestimate it, but the, the parts that are simpler than I thought first before I, what is more challenging. If I take you to a traditional base station and you and I examine what is really there at the site, you know, the, this radio site, the base station, you will find that, uh, you know, almost 95% of every deployment is the same. Basically, there's a big refrigerator cabinet. <laughs> Inside this cabinet, there is something called the baseband. This is the brain of the base station. And this baseband, uh, it was built on custom ASICs that uh, large companies needed to constantly invest into this hardware development for. And so for me, the first thing that we have done is to remove the software and move it into a what is called cuts appliances, off-the-shell appliance, like a, a traditional data center server. So the software piece, not to say that it was not difficult, but I recognize that the software only gets better, only gets better. There is no issues with software. The more difficult part was, uh, you know, the hardware components of what you need for um, the base station is really, really complex. And what I mean by the hardware, at every site, there's this, an antenna. The antenna has a, a transmitting unit called either a remote radio head or in 5G, it's called massive MIMO. Now, these products, 
need to support a huge diversity of spectrum bands, because in every country there is different spectrum bands, there is different bandwidth. Now, if you are a traditional supplier, say uh, Nokia, Ericsson, Huawei, ZTE, these companies have invested and put a large organization, tens and thousands of people, their entire job is to create this hardware, this massive hardware that could support all these diversified spectrum bands. So my number one challenge in Rocket and Mobile is to find these hardware suppliers because there is not a whole lot of them for Open RAN. And the hardware suppliers that could support uh, diversified spectrum requirements because country to country will be different, uh, you know, turn out to be a really, really big challenge. So the approach that we have taken in Japan is, uh, again, go to middle-sized companies, startup. I funded them, uh, encouraged them to build the, the hardware that we need. But I tell you, that is still remains my biggest challenge and my biggest headache is spending time to try to find a company that has capability and scale to become the hardware supplier for Open RAN. If we solve this, a lot of the pieces now uh, are addressed in Open RAN. If we solve this uh, complexity of where you find, uh, you know, someone that has the capability, the scale to build at the right cost structure, the hardware you need for both 4G and 5G, the rest, I think, again, not to underestimate the software important, but I think it's easier to solve the issues compared to solving this problem around some of the RF units that one would need for these base stations. I know that is today my, my personal challenge, and I know the industry as a whole need to solve for this. I know these are complicated products, but are these companies worried that it's kind of a race to the bottom? You know, by analogy to the PC market, right? Most PC vendors ship the same Intel processor, the same basic parts. They have to differentiate around the edges or then do services for recurring revenue. We talk about this in nuclear all the time. The big four that you mentioned, they sell you the whole stack and then they charge for service and support. Like that's a very correct, high margin correct. business. If you commoditize the hardware and say, I'm going to run my own software, do those companies worry? It's just a race to the bottom. I think the, first of all, the uh, differentiate, let's say the, the large companies today versus the new entrants, right? The new entrants on the hardware, I think they are comfortable and content <laughs> comfortable and content being and understood the value they provide by being commodity supplier. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say today Apple uses Foxconn to manufacture its devices. Now, I'm sure Foxconn will not tell you that they're not happy about this business model. But Foxconn has built its entire strategy about maybe high value engineering, high yield, and high capacity manufacturing because that's how they make revenue for. They're, they don't bundle you know, after support services, etc. So what I found out in the new age manufacturing companies that I was looking for, I was looking for companies like Foxconn, you know, companies that understand the business model, the new business model that I want to create. So the approach I have taken, first of all, you know, the most amazing thing that probably the US or some companies are not aware of, the elegance that we have in the United States around silicon companies is just cool. It is amazing how genuinely they are one of the most innovative in the world in terms of capability. It still exists in the US, by the way. We still control this. Today, Qualcomm, Intel, NVIDIA, Broadcom, 
and many other companies provide a lot of technology, by the way, that is needed for these products, right? So we go and build reference design directly with the silicon companies. And then I take the reference design, I go to contract manufacturer, and then I say, build this reference design. So this new way of working, for me, it seems like, at least in my opinion, that's the future world. What I want to see, hopefully, one day, for the hardware supply chain ecosystem, many companies like Foxconn would start to exist, that they will start to appreciate that the value they need to do is to build hardware for all suppliers. By the way, maybe the large four, maybe Ericsson Nokia also, or Ericsson Nokia will, will one day have to look and evaluate a pivoting opportunity, a pivoting to go into a software world, a software world that maybe have a much better valuation. By the way, look at the stock price today of traditional telecom companies. And let me give you an analogy. Look at the stock price of ServiceNow, a digital workflow tool. Look at the difference. One is a complete SaaS model. One lives on a traditional business model. But I don't think the market appreciates and recognize that this is maybe the right thing to do. So I think for me, it seems like it's inevitable. It's just a matter of time for pivoting that needs to happen by the traditional vendors. For me, I want this hardware to be commoditized. It's very important. It has to get commoditized. And the value, what you could compete on, it has to be software and it cannot be hardware. Okay, last question, and then we'll let you go. Thank you for the extra time. Raxon Mobile is only a couple of years old. It's the fourth carrier in Japan. You have 5 million subscribers. Japan's a big country. KDDI has 10x of subscribers. Is the ambition to go be the number one carrier like Geo became the number one carrier? And how do you get there? I'll tell you what I'm really, really proud about what we have done in Japan. I think for many people that have been through this journey of building networks, they will know it's not a trivial process. So for, for us, we had two pragmatic challenges. Number one, go prove to the world that a new technology actually works and delivers on cost, resiliency, reliability. That's checkmark, done. And that's not just by me telling you today, but audited by third party, look at the performance, quality, and reliability we do. The second aspect, if you're in the mobile business, I think you have one area that new technology cannot easily solve for you, which you need to have ubiquitous coverage everywhere and anywhere you go. Whether, uh, you know, I mean, if you come to Japan and Tokyo, I'm not sure if you ever visited this area, but you'll know this is a concrete jungle. It's amazing the density that exists in an area like Tokyo, the subways and the coverage you have to provide for them and the amount of capacity you have to cater for is, uh, is not trivial. So in two years, we've been able to build a network to cater for 96% of Japan coverage in two years. This is just to me, I have never seen the speed that uh, a network could be built at, at this scale. So our ambition is not to be a fourth mobile operator in Japan, it is by far, by far, to be a highly disruptive ecosystem provider in which we want to take the number one position in this country. The approach we take here is very simple. Number one, we need to ensure ubiquitous high quality coverage is delivered anywhere you go in Japan. We're almost, almost there. And I'm talking about not just outdoor high rises, indoor, deep indoor, basements, subways, anything and everywhere you go, amazing network must be delivered. And uh, second is the, the point membership loyalty that I talked to you about earlier. We think that's a huge differentiator from the competitors to, just to bring much bigger value, you know, and being obsessed about the customer experience and the, and the services that we have offered. So from being an infant 
where we are today. I'm really, really happy about what the team has accomplished, but we have a lot of work that we need to focus on to finish the last remaining 3%. The last remaining 3% of our build is extremely important to achieve the quality of coverage that we need to really be at par and better. Now, I would tell you this. I know my cost today is 40% cheaper in running my network than any competitor in Japan. I have an advantage that is virtually impossible for anybody in Japan to compete against today around network cost structure. So that gives me a leg up on what we could do, what business models we could experiment with, and um, the actions that we will take. You will see us very decisive in our approach that we don't want just to be another carrier in Japan. We do want to be a leading mobile operators in this country. All right, Tarek, that was amazing. I feel like I could talk to you for another full hour about this stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Thanks again to Tarek Amin for taking the time to be on Decoder today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I know this one was dense, but I think it was really good. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have discovered, if you tweet about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Moreno. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. <laughs>